Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The UVF seems to have begun a clean-up. It's understood that eight members of the East Belfast UVF have been stood down over links to criminality. And when we say criminality, we mean drug dealing. Well, East Belfast UVF has been widely linked to that, I suppose, massive explosion in the fact that those sort of drugs, drugs like cocaine, um, have become so widespread and so mainstream. The PSNI has been targeting the so-called East Belfast Battalion in recent years over its links to the illicit trade. Weekly, sometimes two, three times a week, the Paramilitary Crime Task Force have searched this property, they've seized this amount of drugs, they have recovered weapons, we believe this is linked to the East Belfast UVF. That is on a weekly basis. There are some suggestions that this latest move might be part of a winding down process for the UVF. Right now, I know internally there is a massive push within the UVF itself to move that transitional process along at a pace. And I know full well that there are back channels with the British and Irish government and specifically to the UVF to try and help move that transitional process along. Could that be true? Will those chucked out go quietly? And what happens next? Our security correspondent, Alison Morris, joins me. Alison. We talk about the UVF all the time. We talk about the UVF in East Belfast all the time. And, 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 and week after week after week, we publish stories. And they're not even significant stories in the paper now because they're so common. And that is drug seizure in East Belfast, someone convicted with UVF links over drug dealing. And many people would just say this is the narco gang in East Belfast. So, so what exactly has happened now? Okay, I'm going to go right right back to, I suppose, the UVF in its entirety, as we know, was always one of the biggest loyalist paramilitary groups, was involved in numerous sectarian murders over the process of the Troubles. But then when it came to the talks around the Good Friday Agreement, they were very much on board. Those loyalist organisations very much were part and partial of those Good Friday Agreement um, negotiations. So you had people like David Irvine, Billy Hutchinson, William Plumsmith, Gary McMichael, all of those loyalists from you representing the UDA and the UVF um, became an integral part of that. And that was obviously for a reason. It was very important, just like Sinn Féin were needed to get the IRA on board for a ceasefire, those people were needed to get the UVF on board for a ceasefire. And next year um, will mark the 30th anniversary of those loyalist ceasefires. So in 1994, the Combined Loyalist Military Command, which represented the UVF, the UDA and the Red Hand Commando, made a, a statement of intent and saying it was calling a ceasefire and, and, and that came shortly after the IRS ceasefire. Um, and 
from then, the, the UVF has remained more or less under the same leadership structures and the same command. Their leadership is now a very aging and veteran leadership based on the Shankill Road, but unlike the UDA, so the UDA was involved in numerous feuds which happened after the ceasefire and then they sort of broke up into a number of sort of autonomous gangs. I always compare them like like some little mini fiefdoms, let's say, where you have like the South East Antrim UDA who broke away. They do their own thing. They're widely considered by the PSNI to be one of the organi- the largest organised criminal um, criminal gangs in, in Ireland. Um, and then you had other smaller breakaway groups. So, you know, we had the, the situation with C Company and what went on with Johnny Adair. And then we had his relationship with the Shikri brothers and how that was played out in North Belfast. So not to go off on a tangent, the UDA doesn't have a central leadership. The UVF does. And by and large apart from the fact that obviously we had the very obvious split with Billy Wright, who started the LVF, by and large, they have remained under that leadership and more or less with some infractions, I think of people like Bobby Moffat, have stayed true to the ceasefire until obviously quite recently we've had statements linked to Brexit and people send the withdrawn support for the Good Friday Agreement. But the UVF is the largest of those paramilitary groups, I suppose is, is where I'm trying to go with this. And is, is within that, the largest group, the largest what they call battalion, so it's separated into six battalion areas, the largest battalion would be East Belfast, um, which doesn't just cover East Belfast. People find it very strange, but it would run the whole way to Bangor, Newtonards, you know, the whole way out down the north down coast. So they've always been the largest and that makes them, I suppose, in terms of loyalist paramilitary groups, the most powerful, the most difficult to control and the most difficult, I suppose, to retain. And they have been the target of the Paramilitary Crime Task Force and for a very good reason, the East Belfast UVF. And listen, loyalist paramilitaries would be, I think when we come to talk about Republican paramilitary groups and dissident groups um, that still exist, and groups like, I suppose, the, the factions of the INLA, their involvement in drugs in the drug trade would be to tax drug dealers. So they approach drug dealers, they say, we want X amount of money from you every month. You don't pay us that, we're going to shoot you. Um, and so they're taxing drug dealers, but they're very careful not to actually touch the drugs themselves. So they go, we're not drug dealers, but they are taxing drug dealers. The difference, what happened with the loyalist paramilitary groups is they started out like that. So they started out taxing drug dealers and then thought, well, we'll just collect the middlemen, just be drug dealers ourselves. And so would be responsible for a large portion of the drugs trade. But East Belfast UVF has been widely linked to that, I suppose, massive explosion in the fact that those sort of drugs, drugs like cocaine, um, have become so widespread and so mainstream. The question I get asked most is why don't they just round them all up and charge them or be a member of the UVF? It is all but impossible to convict someone of membership of a paramilitary organisation unless you have weeks and months and possibly years of covert recordings that would indicate that they are involved in a paramilitary group and they almost have to identify themselves by rank as a member of that paramilitary group. So the only other way, if you don't have covert surveillance, is if someone admits it. And we do see that sometimes in court. People are charged with a whole range of charges and they'll take a plea deal. And the plea deal was is that they'll plead guilty to membership and all the other charges and will fade away. Um, that doesn't happen. So the paramilitary crime tasks know this. 
And I always call it this, is it the sort of Al Capone method of policing? If you can't get them for the gangsters and get them for the tax fraud. So instead, I went, well, does it matter why these people are in jail? Does it matter if they're in jail for being members of the EVF or, member, or does it matter if they're in jail for drug dealing? As long as they're in jail, that's the main thing. Take them off the streets. And so they've been incredibly successful, the paramilitary crime task force. People think because they hear so much about loyalism that nothing is being done. But as a journalist, and you will know, if you check your emails from the police, weekly, sometimes two, three times a week, the paramilitary crime task force have searched this property, they've seized this amount of drugs, um, they have recovered weapons. We believe this is linked to the East Belfast UVF. That is on a weekly basis. So they are being effective. People may not see that, and a lot of that policing work goes on privately, and they have had quite a few successes and convictions in relation to that. This is clearly in a bigger picture. Loyalism is in a transition, albeit a transition that is way too slow, like 30 years too slow. Um, there's a lot of reasons why paramilitary groups such as the UVF and the UDA still exist. A lot of that comes down to some of the feuds. So those feuds that took place in the late 90s and early 2000s, they had to continue to recruit and stay in business as protection from each other. So, you know, to look weak and then come under attack from another paramilitary group or another area. So they, they kept themselves bloated and their structures in place. And then there was the fact that there's just so much money in it. And the money is both legal and illegal. So the legal money came after the peace process when we've seen millions, and I mean millions, of public funded money. Money that came from Europe, money that came from American um, philanthropy projects that was pumped into working class loyalists and Republican areas. And much of that was channeled through groups that had links to paramilitaries, what they called ex-prisoners groups, you know, restorative groups, all of that sort of stuff. They got loads of money pumped through it and that's the legal part of it. Um, and in some ways that almost worked like a form of legal extortion. So you said you keep us funded and you keep us going and you keep all these jobs for the boys and all our mates and we'll keep everything nice and calm. And we would have joked because a lot of that funding cycle would have came around every two years. And years ago as a journalist, we would have said, the funding cycle's up, we'd see what happens. And there would have been rats at interfaces, there'd have been an increase in those paramilitary-style shootings, those sort of punishment-style shootings. And that's like, oh, the funding's coming up because they're like, oh, like we need to go in and sort this out. And But we have this project and we can go in there and we can fix this. So it was but turning things on and off. I mean, there will be people saying, I mean, and we don't want to go off on a tangent. But there will be people listening in saying that, you know, there's a lot of legitimate projects being undertaken by people who are sincere also. This isn't, is this, it's not a complete scam here. No, 100%. And I have reported on those projects and some of them have done amazing work. And some of those loyalist groups, this is why I want to say, this is not like, you know, universally loyalism is just not refusing to go away. There are loyalist factions of loyalist paramilitary groups who transitioned long ago. They're literally now just what they would call old boys clubs. They show up at marches and commemorations, um, band parades, but they're not active in any way, either criminally or in terms of, you know, any targeting of people in the paramilitary. There are there are also paramilitary groups who are still extremely active in terms of, of criminality, and not just criminality. Let's bear in mind back to, you know, the hoax bomb that was placed in the, the Hoban Centre when um, Simon Coveney was given a speech sort of linked to Brexit. They've also been linked to those riots that have taken place that were also linked to the, the Brexit um, withdrawal agreement arrangements and turning that on and off as they seen fit. Um, all of that they have been linked to. And then there's the illegal money. So we do know that there are people who were facing your paramilitaries who were getting 
paid for jobs, community-based paid for jobs. And then we then there's the legal side of the money. So that could be extortion, racketeering, drug dealing. And also, not all of the groups, but some of the groups still pay what they call dues, um, which can be usually around £5 a week, so £20 a month. So imagine if you... It's a big pyramid scheme. It is a big pyramid scheme because the, that money then is then spread out among the sort of leadership of that paramilitary organisation. And imagine if you have 800 men who have to pay £20 a month. Like it's, it's Can I ask a very naive question? But uh, it might be a question that I think people listening to this podcast will be asking themselves. And I, and I do think it's naive, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Well, why do people in, in certain areas put up with this? Well, you're asking why people put up with a paramilitary guy living in the street. It's their uncle. It's their dad. It's their next door neighbour who comes out and when there's kids being antisocial in the street, moves them on. Um, you know, it's the person who, if they're having trouble with a neighbour or someone, they knock their door and not the cops and go, because that's instant. That's an instant retribution that'll be dealt with instantly. It doesn't have to go through the justice system. Um there's a level of course of control obviously involved in that too um, in terms of people who manipulate that system to make sure and that happened through say loan sharking where you're going you're the guy who's like I know you're short of a few quid look here you go you take that but then you got to pay that back um, and the, the um, consequences for not paying that back is not like not paying your credit union you know what I mean there's there's consequences to that there's coercive control but there also is the fact and you could see if you go um, and I have reported on those sort of Remembrance Day events or big bomb parades. There's thousands of people attend them. So to say there is, most people, if you stop them in the street in any loyalist working class area and say, would you like paramilitary groups to go away? They'll say yes, of course. But then if you dig down and you say, you know, if you were having problems with young people or drug dealers or people having parties in your street, who would you go to? And they'll go such and such, he lives in number whatever, you know, and that person will be the paramilitary person in the street. So there is still interaction. There's an over-dependence on that. Police know that. That's obviously the, the push for community policing here was so important after the PSNN. It never really embedded itself properly. Patton was never fully um, realised and that in part is part of the problem. Our justice system works so slow, people become very frustrated and so they, they find themselves then thinking, well, I did report that person to the police and they're still not in jail, so I'll go and get such and such to deal with it instead. You know, so there's that. Now, that is part of the reason. It it's, doesn't explain it completely. But there's also the fact that there's there's power and control in being in a member of a paramilitary group. And also, there's no accident that we see an increase in people joining these kind of um, organisations in areas of social deprivation. And I know that the comments underneath this were going to be, we had no money, my ma had nothing, you know, she had this. And I didn't join a paramilitary group. I understand that. You know, I grew up in a very similar circumstance myself. But what I will say is that everyone's circumstances are different. And young men especially are very open to manipulation because, you know, it can be seen as a status symbol and a power symbol. And it also gives them protection. So it gives you protection from other people. So the periods of transition, I have covered more transitional processes that started, I can't even remember, I don't know how many times. They used to be over in the Park Avenue Hotel, they used to go to these press conferences and they went... This is a new group. We're going to transition. This is what our plans are. Um, I remember going to one of the hotel down in Carrick with the South East Antrim UDA. said, this is our Beyond Conflict document. We're going to transition. You know, we're going to just be a remembrance group in a society and, you know, give us seven million and we'll do that. And this is went on. And every one of them I stand and go, this is just a load of nonsense. This is not going to go anywhere. 
Um, the last one was obviously the LCC and Jonathan Powell sitting there and saying, oh, this is, you know, these people have been left behind, they need to be brought on board, they need to be helped to transition um, uh, away and get their structures dismantled. That's always been going on and it fails and it fails for a really good reason. If you're paying people to transition and funding that transition, it's never going to have an end game because once you get to the end, the money stops. So you have to make the transition last as long as it, it can possibly last. Um, not trying to make light of this, but what I will say is right now, I know internally there is a massive push within the UVF itself to move that transitional process along at a pace. What is that down to? It's partly down to the fact that the paramilitary crime task force are coming down on them like a ton of bricks and that they know, you know, the jig's up in that way. It's partly to do with the fact that there is structures and funding and goodwill that are in place, but only if they're playing the game and they're and they're transitioning, they're not still involved and that kind of criminality. And there's also the fact that, remember, as I said, they have the same structure, the same leadership, but they're old. They're old men now. And I think that there is a will among some of them and they would be people who would have no truck or drugs or anything like that, but that they would like to see that transitional finish before then they leave because they think if they leave before that finishes, it'll be a free-for-all and it'll all fall apart and, you know, people take positions apart, they'll see vacuums, they'll move into them, you know, it'll go, go the way maybe some of the dissident groups went. So so you, it is interesting, but you do think that this time there is actually some reality to this. I do, I do. And I know full well that there are back channels with the British and Irish government to the, these organisations and specifically to the UVF to try and help move that transitional process along. And I know there is will, but there is obviously those governments are coming back and saying, this is great and these are great words and we like what you're saying. We're willing to help you. What are you doing about all those boys you keep getting arrested for drug dealing every week? What are you doing about that? Now, Ten years ago, even five years ago, they maybe could have went in and had a violent uprising and removed those people from power. They can't do that now. You can't say to the government, we're transitioning and we're going to move all those bad boys out. But could you give us ten minutes to shoot them all first? You know, that can't be done. So we're now in a position where hard do they then move on and remove them. So what you have to say is that the only way and the Independent Reporting Commission who annually update us in those reports and will have another report out next month, which I will probably be back in here speaking to you about when it happens. They have said you can't take everyone, but we are convinced we can take maybe three quarters and we can take them along to transition. And the rest, you just got to say, you are now for the cops to deal with. We're not working with this anymore. We're not helping this transition. We're done. Transitioning's over. You're now a criminal justice problem. But, but, there were thousands of loyalists marching on Sunday uh, for remembrance services. Um, we understand the story is that behind closed doors and social clubs, and, and I think it's five different locations, the statement is, is read out, um, and that eight members of the East Belfast UVF are stood down, whatever that means. Uh, but there, there was armed men presence. There was present. no armed men presence. You don't believe no, that? There was not. I have checked and I spent, you know, at least two days this week driving around like a lunatic, speaking to people who would have been at all those meetings. Years ago, I covered those events and armed men used to come out onto the street. So those statements in Remembrance Day would have been read out at a Remembrance Garden in the street with a platform built and someone would have stood on top of it and a masked man would have come out, armed men at each side of them and they'd read out a statement from the UVF and all the people gathered there would have cheered and um, the journalists would have hoped that we all got out of there in, in one piece. 
Um, that doesn't happen now. They have the Remembrance Day marches and band parades. Anyone who was driving around Sunday will have came across them, you know, diverted traffic. There was bandsmen everywhere. Um, and a reef land at a Remembrance Garden. But then they go back to various social clubs. The statement that was read out was drafted by the central leadership of the UVF and the Shankill. And that was given to the five battalion, as they call them, areas, apart from East Belfast, who have always had their own statement anyway, because they've always been under the central leadership, but slightly autonomous to them. That statement talked about the need to preserve the UVF name in, in terms of remembrance, but, uh, you know, it's accepting there's transition. And then coming near the end, it said that that there would be no place for those who were still involved in criminality. And I believe the words, even um, those in a leadership position, and that said from midnight that evening that those people would be stood down. It didn't name them by name. The statement was read out and what I was told when I asked about this was their mass memos, their guns. I was told that no, the person reading the statement is usually flanked by two people. In the past, they would have been people in balaclavas and guns and all of that there. This was the place that we lived in. I know people listening to this are probably going, this is bunkers, but look, I'm, this is the reality of where the, the place we come from. Now, it would have been people who would have wore probably like knitted, like monkey, you know, style hats, I don't know what you call it, like a bobble hat with a UVF logo on it. And they have jackets that have UVF logos on them. And that's what way they dress now. There is no, um, there, there was no, and this is, and I, I believe the people I've spoken to, there's no reason that there was no master or man. I think where that came from was that on Sunday night, Myself and half the country received a series of WhatsApp messages that were going around with all sorts of mad information about, you know, mass men firing shots and naming people who they were saying were taking over the leadership of the East Belfast UVF and all sorts of other nonsense. But um, you got to build around to try and find where the truth is in these things. And it's my impression there was people who were dressed in outfits that had UVF logos on them, but not mass men with guns. The statement was read out. It's my understanding that East Belfast were aware of some of what was going to be in that statement, but not all of it. They had their own statement, which I'm told was read out and contained quite similar language in terms of of um, criminality and what they were going on the ramp and the need to to remember or recall the name or retain the name of the UVF for remembrance purposes. But the stuff about people being um, expelled as of midnight was obviously not in their statement and was in the other statements. Um and that would involve, I suppose, the leadership of that group. And then the question, I suppose, remains is, was that why was that done? What is going to be done now? What happens next? Which is, I suppose, where we are now. We've, we've covered what happened to get to that point. What happens next? Well, this is it. These eight people, I'm presuming, I'm getting the impression that they're senior in, in, in the East Belfast yeah. UBF. That would say to me that they have access to the weapons that they have. Yeah. It would say to me that they, well, it has been alleged that these people are connected to drug dealing, which is obviously uh, involves a lot of money. So why would you go quietly? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. People probably expected them not to go quietly. Um, and if you'd have, if I'd have been covering this story five or ten years ago, they definitely would not have gone quietly. There would have been a reaction. You'd have seen something like in the form of a sort of show of strength on the street. You'd have seen men marching in East Belfast in a threatening manner. You'd have seen anyone who's maybe linked to the Shankill UVF or has relatives linked to the Shankill UVF living in East Belfast, maybe them coming under attack or their houses coming under attack. And that hasn't happened. Um, I struggled, I suppose, to get my head around what was going on myself. But 
from what I've told is just like there's just there's no appetite among these people to start a feud. Memories of that Shankill feud are still very, very vivid. You know, anyone who knows, anyone who lives in the Shankill will tell you that completely destroyed that area, turned, you know, father against father. And, you know, it was it, it was probably the biggest displacing of, of people. You know, so many people had to move out of their homes. I think I remember one time, check, it was like 450 families or something had to leave their homes in the Shankill. So... Nobody wants to go back to that because that was so horrifically damaging, I think, for everyone um, in loyalist society and there would be no truck for that now, I remember. But these are people who are armed. That's not to say this couldn't change on a dime. It could. It just takes one wrong thing to be said or one wrong thing to happen. But with my understanding is there is some sort of mediation going on at the minute and there's a real attempt to try and keep this as calm as is possible. Um, That the problem that exists is you expel the leadership of that and you take it out. But there's a thousand or so members of these Belfast UVF. If you don't put someone else in place to be the leader of that organisation, then it becomes something that could be an uncontrollable beast, if you know what I mean. It could be something that could be, you know, it could, it could run on for years and years and years. It could cause real criminal justice and, and obviously also violent issues in that area. But that's what would have happened in the past. That isn't what's happening. And I find that very interesting. And I'll start, I'll finish this. I suppose I'll, I'll go back to where I started. Loyalism is in transition. And I know that people go, this is nonsense. We've heard this before. And I've heard it before. But I do truly believe we're at an end game now. There is an attempt to sort of clean house for their funders and for the governments. Um, clean house by expelling these people. But what happens now after that? Well, they can just go... If those people continue on, then it means that the main organisation in bulk of the UVF can turn around and say to the two governments, well, look, we did our part. We can't go over and shoot them or kill them because that would be a breach of our transitioning process. But we've done our part. At least someone else needs to do the rest of it. You know, we can't we can't deal with that any other way. Well, I mean, we mentioned this transition. Could, I mean, could the mainstream UVF transition into this sort of post-conflict uh commemoration committee but then could there be another transition that some people will not give up the money will not give up the drug dealing transform transition into ordinary distant drug dealers without the UVF beanie hat there's there's clearly people here just going to continue on being drug dealers because they make a fortune from that you know and we see in those reports the the you know the people with the flash cars and the turkey teeth and the Dubai holidays and and all the trappings of wealth and you know you're not gonna you're not gonna give that up overnight. Let's face it, there's you no know, big bucks in that and it's a certain lifestyle that they they don't have the skills or training or job prospects to do that kind of money elsewhere. So they're just not gonna give it up. But yeah, they will just be criminals. They will be classed as criminals. And more importantly is, but the, the question is, will the UVF stop profiting from that and will they stop offering protection from that to that? Because the only reason a drug dealer would join the UVF is to get the protection of the UVF. Just as, you know, the only reason a drug dealer would pay money to a distant Republican or an armed distant Republican group is to get protection from that group. But will the UVF leadership be powerful enough to say... And do they still have enough authority? Do those old men still command enough respect to say, no, we're moving on, you're now finished, you're now outside of our tent, you don't get our protection, you don't get to use our name, um, you're just a drug dealer. Um, I don't know. Final question, Alison. In terms of um, political figures who bring us an understanding of loyalism, have they been 
commenting on these developments? Nobody has. And that's another thing that will lead you to... That's another reason why you know that there's a real attempt to try and play this down and to try and, you know, pull cold water on any tensions that might exist. Because in the past, we'd have had those people who do have political pull within those organisations out releasing statements on their behalf or giving interviews or even giving, you know, briefings and things like that. And what you've also noticed is even on social media, there hasn't been a whole lot of people bickering and fighting each other. You know, we'll do this and we'll do that. Even anonymously, it's all been kept quite quiet. So I do think that there's this very strong hand trying to say, we don't want this to turn into a free-for-all. We don't want to turn, you know, communities against each other. We're not up for a big, a big fight but bear in mind, change is coming and people need to be aware of that. Alison Morris, security correspondent with the Belfast Telegraph. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 